This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Garrett Conley, author of the memoir, Boy Erased. His book focuses on the early years of his life growing up gay in rural Arkansas and attending conversion therapy at a place called Love in Action. Love in Action is a fundamentalist Christian organization that promised to cure lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender congregants of their, quote, sexual addictions. We began the interview discussing how Conley went from a typical white middle-class life to something more foreign when his father started a car dealership in Cherokee Village, Arkansas, and became increasingly more religious. He started holding all of these sort of what I took to be Sunday school classes, only they were every morning, every weekday morning at the car dealership. And uh, he would actually pay his employees to sit in on these little Bible studies. That was sort of the first sign that my dad was becoming a bit more of a fanatic. Um, I hate to use that word because I think it covers up a lot of what my dad actually is, but you know, to the outside world, that's pretty fanatical. <laughs> and um, and he had these signs up that he would start putting around the dealership, and it would say things like, uh, you know, no cussing here. This is God's business. And he started passing out bumper stickers that you see often on cars in the South that are like, you know. Um, anti-LGBT marriage, um, and it was just sort of a tone shift. I mean, we'd always been missionary Baptists, which if you don't know much about missionary Baptists, they tend to be uh, pretty pretty good proselytizers, um, hence the missionary part of the name. And and so my dad felt that it was his duty almost to use his business um, as a way to spread God's word. And when I was 16, he, uh, my mom and I were sitting in church on Sunday, and my dad got up out of the aisle and started shaking and crying, and he walked to the preacher who was standing at the front of the church. And... Um, declared that he wanted to be a preacher and everything sort of changed in that moment. My mom and I were both shocked. We'd always, you know, just thought of our lives as pretty normal. And my mom, as my mom has said many times since that day, I didn't sign up to be a preacher's wife. Um, but there was a sort of a new scrutiny in our household after that day. Uh, my dad began to look at everything in his life and everything in our lives as potentially sinful and he would always try to sort of scrub clean the household of any sin. And so, you know, little things like going to the movies became extraordinarily complicated suddenly where my dad actually, you know, if, if he encountered like a cuss word, and I put that in scare quotes, um, like even if it was like damn, and especially if it was goddamn, then um, he would walk out of the movie theater and he would basically look at my mom and me 
and say, like, are you coming? And at first, of course, we always came with him. And then later, we would be like, no, we paid money for this. And so that's sort of the transition that was occurring by the time I was 16. So tell me about what was going on in your head, in your adolescence, you know, growing up um, until you were about 19 in terms of your identity and your sexual identity. Yeah, I mean, I knew that I was gay probably from the age of, well, from third grade because I had a really cute teacher. Um, And I always explain this by saying that there were two distinct and competing narratives. I mean, probably more than two, but there were at least two in my head when I was a child and then growing into a teenager. One of the I knew I was totally gay, and there was nothing I could do to change it. If if I'm on the Kinsey scale, I'm all the way, you know, <laughs> towards totally gay. Um, and so, you know, I would see other boys and think they were cute. I would see, you know, my teacher, Mr. Smith, in third grade, um, and think that he was cute. But then there was another narrative that said, this is impossible. God wouldn't make you this way. You have to change who you are, uh, and you can't let anyone know at all. And that fear did most of the work of covering up who I was to myself. Um, It's amazing how the fear of losing family and losing God and basically losing what other identities I had as a kid in a small town, which you don't get many, that that fear is able to dictate everything you think. And um, I just thought, eventually, this is going to go away. I'm going to figure out a way to, to get rid of these thoughts. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Garrett Conley, author of the memoir, Boy Erased. When you were getting these messages that you were, that what you were doing was wrong, you basically believed them. Tell me a little bit about what happened in college for you and how you were outed. So it's it's kind of complicated, but it's this perfect storm of events that sort of would compel one to join conversion therapy, which was really important for me in writing the book. Um, I didn't want to simplify it. I wanted to show how all the all the elements of bigotry that were sort of in the water in my childhood came together in a stronger form right before my enrollment in Love and Action, which is the Xscape therapy facility, and during my time there. Um, and so one of the things that happened to me was that I was raped um, by someone in college that I knew who also knew my mother, um, and he was part of a youth group and he was training to become a youth pastor. Um, and he had actually raped a 14-year-old boy and told me about it right before he raped me. And so after that happened, I was so confused. I actually believed some of the stuff that people had told me growing up. Would, and one of, one of these ideas was that like all gay people were pedophiles or predators in some way. And I thought, well, I don't want to rape 14-year-old boys, so, you know, if that's what being gay is, and if this is some sort of punishment, some sort of message from God that I shouldn't go this route, um, then 
I'll do anything to change that part of me. And so once, you know, he raped me and then he called my mom um, and he said, your son is living an openly gay lifestyle, which was not true. Um, I'd talked to him in confidence about some of my feelings. And he told my mom this and she came to the college and um, basically said, you know, she and my mom, my dad said that uh, I wouldn't be able to continue college uh, if I was openly gay, and that uh, there was like, you know, only one solution, and the solution was to go to love in action, and to be cured, and and they'd learned this from the church, uh, so there were these brochures stocked in various churches throughout the country in 2004 that suggested, you know, like this is the way forward if your kid is, you know, somewhere on the spectrum. Of course, they wouldn't use Spectrum. They weren't sophisticated enough to do that. You were enrolled in Love in Action, which is an ex-gay conversion therapy, and they it's treated like a 12-step program, like you have an addiction. So can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about what it was like when you got there and the messages you heard? So it was basically a 12-step program that was based on Alcoholics Anonymous. It treated homosexuality as an addiction, but it also treated many things as an addiction. For example, bestiality, pedophilia. There were people dealing with sex addiction as well. And so it sort of grouped everyone together of all ages. And the common denominator with everyone was that we'd all been in various fundamentalist churches that believed in the quote-unquote literal interpretation of the Bible. And so uh, I was grouped with, I was sitting next to a guy who identified as a pedophile who was much older, and then there was like a woman dealing with marriage issues um, to my left, and there were some people my own age that were dealing with, you know, bisexuality, homosexuality, etc. And so um, we would have these therapy sessions every morning wherein we would um, recount what were called moral inventories, which is another borrowing from Alcoholics Anonymous. And these were narratives that we actually wrote out um, that described some sort of sinful thought or behavior or fantasy um, that we'd experienced in the past. And then we would share that, and the group would say, okay, we'll read you know, First Corinthians, blah, 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 so that you can cure yourself and think about God's love for you. And then when, um, when we did our afternoon sessions after our moral inventories, um, we usually had some sort of activity that was designed to teach us through various methods um, about why we were at a place like Love in Action. And one of those, um, one of my, I guess you could say favorites, I only say favorite because it's like, kind of funny to look back on now. Um, one of my favorite activities was the genogram, which uh, genogram is actually used in regular therapy sessions. It's basically a visual you know, representation of your family tree. And then next to each family member's names, you are supposed to place these things called sin symbols, which are symbols that represent various sins that you might find in the Bible. So, um, for example, I mean, you wouldn't find it in the Bible necessarily, but it's like if you're doing some sort of literal interpretation, 
um, AB for abortion, and then a dollar sign for gambling, and then a D for drunk. And so, you know, the poor uncle that had everything next to his name <laughs> just like looked really bad on the family tree. And basically, you were supposed to look at that family tree and say, okay, that's why I am gay, because the sins of the fathers you know, go to the children, which is part of a Bible verse. It's hard for me to like pinpoint exactly what they were trying to teach us, save for, you know, shame and self-loathing and fear. Were there points in there where what they were saying made sense to you in terms of look to God, you just have a problem and, and you can fix this? It was a twisted version of what I'd already heard my whole life. So I do remember feeling like, okay, this is complete BS. It's ridiculous. Like, these people are so obviously still gay. I mean, my counselors were, you know, to use a term I don't really like, pretty flaming. You know, like, they, it's hard to hide the fact that they were seemingly exhibiting, you know, LGBTQ attributes in some ways. Um, they're kind of campy, too. So I, sometimes I would think this is never going to work. This is the craziest thing in the world. And then other times I would I would think, well, this has to work. Um, and God may be speaking in strange ways. I mean, the Bible has this whole history of absurdity sort of um, leading to insight. I mean, if you look at many of the things that Jesus said, especially in the parables, he was always being so shocking and people were you know, always dismissing what he was saying because it was couched in this strange rhetoric that they'd never heard before. And so I thought, you know, if there's that tradition in the Bible, then maybe it's true in real life. Maybe the world just doesn't understand what these nice men and women at Love and Action are trying to do. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Garrett Conley, author of the memoir, Boy Erased. One of the things I think you really depict very well is how much your parents love you. When you were born, your mom had had a miscarriage and had lost a child, and it was difficult for her to carry to term. And so you were like such a gift and a miracle in their lives. And when you were born, your dad takes like a Swiss army knife and he makes a little <laughs> sign on your foot just so he knows that you're his. And um, I, it was so touching. And there's also a scene where you're on vacation with them and you they you, you read a treasure story or you were talking about a treasure story mm. and your mom had your grandparents set up a whole treasure hunt when you got back to your house. Like really loving, thoughtful things as if they were looking at you as a complete individual and giving you what you needed. And I'm just wondering if you could talk about that love. You know, when I was writing the book, I had so much survivor's guilt because I was only in love and action for two weeks. But I always thought, you know, this is a story that's painful for me, but at no point, even when I was given an ultimatum by my dad, you know, either go to therapy or you won't see your family again, that, you know, that was obviously the worst moment in, in my relationship with my parents. But at no point did I think that they didn't love me. 
And I just felt, I've always felt their love as something that is just a complete given. It's just part of the atmosphere. It's part of my life. Um, and so I felt guilty almost because I was like, I had that and that's why I survived. I felt worthy even when I felt worthless. There was something, there was some other voice, some other element to my life that I didn't really understand at the time as love, but it was love. They wanted a child so much. I think they wanted my childhood to be really magical. And so there's this sort of magical element to my whole childhood that I still think back on fondly. Even after Love in Action, when I went home and my dad said, are you cured? And I said, well, no, I don't think it works that way. Um, we were quiet about it for a very long time, but we were still, you know, we still loved each other. And my mom is this perfect testament to this kind of love because she, you know, it took her many years of praying and rethinking everything, but she now, you know, she'll like attend my readings sometimes. Um, she's a very outspoken advocate for LGBTQ rights. Um, and she's still a preacher's wife. And if uh, you know, the wife of a man who still believes that what my life is, is essentially wrong. You know, they're complicated people who at no point thought that, you know, dismissing me or uh, sort of cutting me off would be the right solution. So what is your relationship with your dad now? Because you said that your mom has sort of come around, but what yeah. about your dad? At the end of the book, I, I talk about how my dad called me uh, right when the book was sold and he said I just want you to be happy and um, you know he said I wish this wasn't the book that that got you your first book from a major publisher but I know this is what you've wanted for a very long time and so that was really nice to hear um, and in keeping with our excellent compartmentalization skills um, we've kept that true for each other, you know, his being happy for me while also, you know, completely disagreeing with one another. He believes that it's still wrong for me to be openly gay. I believe that what he preaches is wrong. But I think, you know, he's making these smaller steps. My mom will report into me that he, he's been more open in the church lately. He has his own church and so um, for a while there was this lesbian couple that would go to his church and he would not preach against homosexuality when they were there. And so I thought, you know, it's a very small step, but for my dad that's a huge step. We actually share poetry together, so I, um, I started giving him classics not too long ago. I gave him some Walt Whitman, which I know Whitman is like the queerest poet there is, but my dad um, loved it and he would recite lines of like leaves of grass to me and he would say, you know, don't you just love the way the sounds work? My dad has just absorbed poetry in this way that's really shocking to me and makes me feel like we have a lot more in common than I ever even knew. You know, I, I'm one of those naive people that really believes that writing changes lives and that it it has the power to completely transform 
You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Garrett Conley, author of the memoir, Boy Erased. You grew up with this feeling of God's love in your life. What is that like for you now? Well, it sucks because, um, I mean, I think I think I have a huge capacity for love. I think it's shut down all the time because I'm so afraid of what really intense love has made me do in the past. Um, and I believed so strongly when I was a kid that I was speaking directly to God. And now I'm, you know, agnostic. And so, you know, it's strange to go 18 19 years of your life believing in demons and God and hell and then suddenly not believing in that anymore. It's like something has to take the place of that. And for me, what took the place of that was literature and and the, the belief that human beings are worthy of our attention and that what we have on this earth is sacred in its own way and that the details that make up a life are what give us so much of our beauty. You know, sometimes I still feel this yearning for like a simpler version of that truth. You know, it's you can't always just be, well, I guess you can be reading Proust and happy. But sometimes I just want to be like, okay, where's my like direct conversation with God? Where's that like overpowering religious feeling that extreme love that's like burning inside of you. I mean, sometimes you get that in the writing process. There there are moments where I'm writing and I'm just like, this is so great. I feel totally in touch with some sort of other divine presence or something. But yeah, I, I still miss it. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest, who joined me via Skype, is Garrett Conley, author of the memoir, Boy Erased. So can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Nightwood by Juna Barnes. She is this really interesting Parisian writer. So she was in Paris at the time when she was writing this. Uh, It was written... I guess in, yeah, 1930s, um, and it was extraordinarily controversial when it was published. T.S. Eliot wrote an intro for her. Um, He really championed her work, and um, it's got all this sort of genderqueer, super philosophical, philosophically complex passages, and, you know, blatant homosexuality, and... um, I, I discovered it last year, and I just thought it was so cool to know that writers were dealing with this BS a long time ago, but still writing pretty fearlessly. So this is um, pretty early on, in, and it's from a chapter called Night Watch. Love becomes the deposit of the heart, analogous in all degrees to the findings in a tomb. As in one will be charted the taken place of the body, the raiment, the utensils necessary to its other life, so in the heart of the lover will be traced as an indelible shadow that which he loves. In Nora's heart lay the fossil of Robin, intaglio of her identity, and about it for its maintenance ran Nora's blood. Thus the body of Robin could never be unloved, corrupt, or put away. 
Robin was now beyond timely changes, except in the blood that animated her. That she could be spilled of this fixed, the walking image of Robin in appalling apprehension on Nora's mind. Robin alone, crossing streets, in danger. And that's like a lesbian love affair, basically described in this completely gorgeous, eternal love passage. It's just so, so beautiful. Do you want to say anything more about how that inspired you or... Um, well, it's, it's inspired me since writing this book, but, um, like I, I'm always looking for passages that really accurately describe, um, queer experience because I, I didn't have access to a lot of those narratives when I was younger. I sort of hunt for those. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was something that was tricky or challenging or changed from the first draft. (laughs) The section that was hardest for me was the rape. I had to figure out a way to describe my rape that didn't feel like I was asking for sympathy, but also didn't feel cold. And so I I had to sort of use metaphor and the Bible as a way to write through the rape. And one one of the criticisms that I just happened to read on Goodreads, which is always a mistake, said like, oh, well, you know, Conley didn't even really describe the rape very much, which I don't really know why readers want a vivid description of my rape, but it's true. I didn't want to just like focus on how horrible my life was. I wanted it to be very much not a trauma narrative, but but more of a, a narrative that provided insight. I'll just do the first paragraph. Even if you know the person, especially if you know the person, rape and the memory of it becomes a blinding flash, a brush against something bigger than yourself. Sometimes the experience takes the form of a divine visitation, such as our need to displace the reality of it. Like Lot's daughters at Sodom, those beautiful virgins offered up in the place of angels for lascivious Sodomites. Behold now, Lot entreats, I have two daughters which have not known man, Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do ye to them as is good in your eyes. Perhaps later they remembered the smell of the city market in the early morning, the feel of the sun as they turned their faces from one stall to the next, the shock of cool, stream-washed lentils passing through their fingers as they helped their mother prepare an evening meal. Like these daughters, I might remember in ultra-exposed detail the swirl of wood grain at the base of David's bunk, the sound of the hallway doors closing one after another outside his room as my fellow freshmen returned from their nights of heavy drinking. But I would not remember the act itself. So sort of through metaphor and identification with Lot's daughters in the, in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, which is itself very loaded, and I'm sort of reappropriating the story for my own purposes here. Um, I thought it was sort of a a more clever way to, to describe the rape in some ways. You're listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest who joined me via Skype is Garrett Conley, author of the memoir, Boy Erased. 
where do you write? I write right now. I write here in this exact position, which you can't see if you're listening to this. It's um in my bedsty apartment in the kitchen slash sort of bleeds over into a living room. I used to write, so I wrote my entire book uh, in my office in Bulgaria because I was teaching there, and um, and I would wake up at four thirty and write until 7, and then I would go teach high school full-time, which I don't even know how I did that. <laughs> um, but uh, but now I have a freelance schedule, so it's much easier to procrastinate. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I run. Um, since I was 19, it's in the book, too. I've loved to run. It's just a way to clear my head. I also really, really love movies, and so I'll, if I go watch a movie, I can completely forget that anything else exists in my life. And it's sort of, it's sort of like taking a nap. Like it sort of hits the reset button on, on any of the sort of harmful thoughts that might enter my head during the day. Because I, I write, you know, I'm writing a novel right now, um, and it's very much about sort of some of the same disturbing issues that are in Boy Erased. Um, and I'm writing a, a character that is highly unreliable, and he's this preacher. Um, and so I have to sit a long time with really dark sides of humanity and, and my childhood. And so I like to, I like to you know, disappear into other narratives. So I, I read a lot, and I also read a lot of theory, because I love literary theory. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? My best friend, Ashley Campbell, we were in grad school together and um, she would sit down with me with my short stories just for fun and help me um, work on the images and she helped me apply for grad school. And and it, so she's just like this amazing, rare find. I always tell students when I'm teaching memoir, like if you can find somebody who without payment, will actually read your stuff and care about it and, you know, write notes to you about it, then cherish that person and do whatever you have to do to keep them in your life. Um, so Ashley has, she read every page of Boy Erased, like basically as I wrote it, I would just send her pages and I would say, I don't want your feedback. I just want you to, to experience it and keep me on track. And how have you dealt with rejection? Rejection was like constant until Boy Erased. It's crazy how I actually got Boy Erased published. I was, um, I just happened to sit next to Maude Newton, who was like, she was a big book blog person, and now she's got like a good book coming out. But she introduced me to her agent, and it all just sort of fell into place after that. And so since Boy Erased, it's been much easier to get published. But um, with rejection, I just sort of, I don't know, I've always just been really stubborn and believed that I had something to say that was original. But that doesn't mean I didn't like cry my eyes out whenever I would get big rejections. Or um, now that I'm trying to switch over into fiction, I'm sure I'll get some of that old feeling back. And what is your favorite word? You know, it's hard for me to isolate a favorite word from 
from like a line that I've heard because I like the way that words play against each other. I really like Cairn. Is that how you pronounce it? C-A-I-R-N. Yeah, I love that word so much. I think it's, I don't know why. It's like hard for me to talk about why I like it, but I, I like how it would potentially play against harder words. It's such a hard word to pronounce because it's so open and soft in some ways and sounds like so many other words. So I could see how that could play interestingly in a, in a sharper line with some strong consonants. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest who joined me via Skype was Garrett Conley, author of the memoir Boy Erased. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.